In this episode, we will extend our knowledge of orbits. We learn about some factors that cause deviations from our ideal orbits, and what effect these factors have on our missions in space. Back in episode 2, we discussed orbital mechanics. We learned how in space, the gravitational pull of a large body can cause another body to orbit around it. We learned that orbits take the shape of conic sections, circles, ellipses, hyperbolas, depending on the gravitational field and the velocity of our orbiting body. We also said that in these conditions, the orbit will continue indefinitely, since there were no other forces to destabilize it. There were three laws of planetary motion that really helped us describe and understand some of the properties of orbits. And we even looked at an equation, the V-Viva equation if you recall, that could be used to determine our speed at all the different points in an orbit. Today, we're going to look into some details about orbits that we sort of glossed over previously. Some of these effects might seem minor, but you'll find that they can have large consequences for how our orbits end up behaving. The topic we're going to talk about today is the idea of orbital perturbations. All of our results and equations from before imagined a universe with only the central mass and the orbiting body. We treated both of these as point masses, meaning that the mass of each body was perfectly concentrated at one point in space. We know that this simply isn't true. Bodies aren't always, or ever really, perfectly symmetrical. And we also have a lot of external forces acting on all these bodies. So in reality, there are a number of factors that apply other forces to the orbiting body, and these will end up changing the orbit. The equations that we talked about before described only the central gravitational force, which has the biggest influence on the orbit. The perturbing forces that we will investigate today are much smaller, and generally just cause deviations from the ideal Keplerian orbit. So the orbits will still look a lot like we discussed before. We can get away with keeping our baseline Keplerian orbits and adding on the perturbations, because these perturbation forces are significantly smaller than the primary gravitational force. This saves us having to throw away everything we already learned and having to come up with really complicated equations. Instead, we can modify our existing equations. Basically, we say our real orbit is that ideal orbit from before, plus a bunch of small forces. Remember that our orbit was defined by six Keplerian elements. That was how we could describe each orbit uniquely. See if you can remember all six. I'm not going to review them here, 
but feel free to pause and refresh your memory. In practice, what we do when we investigate orbital perturbations is we look at how the forces change one or several of these elements. We can think of these changes in an interesting way, relating to our unperturbed Keplerian orbit. We already learned that perturbations will move our orbit away from our ideal, unchanging orbit. But what happens if we freeze time and we look at a series of snapshots of the orbit? Now at each point in time, we still have a position and a velocity of our orbital body. This position and velocity is not the exact same as for the unperturbed orbit. Because like we mentioned, we have external forces acting on the body and changing its path. But for each snapshot in time, we can use the position and velocity to calculate an ideal orbit. This is the path that the orbiting body would follow if all the perturbations were immediately switched off. This way of looking at perturbations might not seem like a big difference, but it is fairly significant. What this new point of view has allowed us to do is to analyze these perturbed orbits as a sequence of unperturbed orbits, the orbits that we already understand. We have a name for these ideal orbits, these snapshots, and that is osculating orbits. This actually comes from the Latin for kiss, because the osculating elements kiss the perturbed orbit. We're using the term kiss because they have the same position and velocity at a given point. So we can use this method to look at how the Keplerian elements of the perturbed orbit change over time. When we talk about how the perturbations change the Keplerian elements, there are two general types of variation. We could have periodic variation, which means that it repeats somehow. Or we could have secular variation, which means it does not repeat. It changes only in one direction. And sometimes we also have a combination of these types. Or it's possible to have superimposed periodic variations with different frequencies. The important thing for us at this moment is that the various forces can affect our different Keplerian elements differently, and different elements to different degrees. We brought up these perturbing forces quite abstractly, but what is actually causing these forces? First, let's talk about perturbations from gravity. We recall that the gravity of the central force is the force that allows orbits to happen. But the orbiting body doesn't just feel the gravity of the central body. It is also influenced by every other body in the universe. Now, since we know that gravitational force decays with the distance squared, the further bodies will cause very small perturbations. For satellites in the orbit of Earth, 
The gravity of the moon, the sun, and even the closest planets apply noticeable forces. Since gravity is an attracting force, the forces applied on the orbiting body will depend on the position of the perturbing bodies. In our solar system, we have eight planets that orbit around the sun, and each planet has its own gravitational pull. The planets all orbit the sun, but they still exert a small pull on each other. You might imagine that if you're trying to get a very accurate picture of how all these forces are affecting an orbit, you would have to know very precisely where the other planets are positioned. So not only is your satellite, or orbiting body, being perturbed by the external forces, but those external forces might be constantly changing. On Earth, we see this gravitational pull as tides that are mostly caused by the gravitational pull of the Sun and the Moon. The Moon causes tides as it orbits the Earth, because it's relatively close. The Sun causes variations in the lunar tides, because despite its distance, it's so massive. Venus and Jupiter also cause noticeable tides, but these are much, much smaller than those from the Sun and the Moon. A brief little aside about tides that I find interesting. A tide aside, if you will. When we picture tides, we might imagine water on the side of the Earth, facing the Moon, to be pulled towards the Moon. You might know that high tides actually happen on both sides of the Earth simultaneously. But how can this be, even if we just have one perturbing body? Let's just focus on the tides from the Moon for a moment. Well, we know that gravitational force is lessened by the square of the distance. So doubling the distance will result in one quarter of the force. So the moon pulls on the earth, but not evenly. The closest side of the earth is actually pulled harder than the farther side. This explains one of the tides pretty obviously. The water is pulled away from the earth. But the moon is also pulling on the earth itself. The force is less than the water on the close side, but more than the water on the far side. Maybe you're able to visualize this stretching out of the water and the earth. And, if we take a reference frame on the earth, since that's where we live, we end up with a tidal bulge, a high tide, simultaneously on both sides of the earth. When we think about tides in our daily lives, if they come up at all, you almost certainly think of water. But actually, we have something called solid earth tides as well. You may know that the inner earth is made up of many different layers. We have the solid crust that we're familiar with, and very viscous liquid rock in the mantle inside. I don't intend to focus on the composition of the Earth right now. But the important thing to know is that the Earth is not perfectly rigid. It can be deformed when a force is applied. And gravity just so happens to do that. 
Just like they pull on the Earth's water, the sun, the moon, and all the other celestial bodies pull on the ground as well. And this causes a vertical displacement. The maximum amplitude of this displacement isn't as much as for water. It's around a few decimeters. But these tides aren't just a curious effect. They can also perturb our orbit. Shifting the Earth, or the water, albeit very little, changes the distribution of the mass of the Earth, which in turn changes its gravitational field. In this way, tides, both from water and the solid Earth, can perturb our satellites. This is like a second-order effect of the gravitation of other bodies. First, these external bodies pull on the satellite and change its path. And then, they also change the satellite's path by altering the gravitational pull of the body that the satellite is orbiting. This seems like a good time to talk about the shape of the Earth. You might be thinking, well, that's a very simple question. It's spherical, of course. If you believe that the Earth is flat, first of all, I'm amazed you made it this far through the podcasts. And secondly, I would genuinely be curious to hear your reasoning. But silliness aside, the Earth is very close to spherical, but not perfect. We know this because there are mountain ranges and oceans that all change the topography. And not only is the Earth not spherical, but more importantly, it doesn't have uniform density. The crust has varying thicknesses and densities, and even the mantle underneath undergoes convection, which changes the local density. All this basically means that we can't treat the mass of the Earth as just a point mass. But since this is what we were doing when we first learned about orbits, does that mean we have to throw out everything we learned? No, of course not. That stuff was still a good approximation. We just need to recognize that it's not exactly what is going on. As you know, science is built on models and predictions. So a very natural way of teaching science is to start by introducing simple models, and then later teach the exceptions and refinements to those models. But this has the unfortunate drawback of sometimes making the student feel cheated. I can recall many times in my formal education where my teacher would teach something that altered something that I had previously been taught, often even by that same teacher. Sometimes this annoyed me, and I wondered like why I couldn't be trusted with all the information straight away. Eventually, I think I got better at understanding why it was necessary to explain different scientific topics in this way. And I got better at appreciating these revelations, and I was able to enjoy reshaping and honing my understanding. Those aha moments can be very satisfying, but you have to be in the right mindset for them. That being said, I won't take it too personally if you get annoyed when I do the same thing. So what does it matter that our central body is not a point mass or a perfect sphere? Well, the gravitational field will not be perfectly symmetrical, 
and that's what's really defining our orbit. So calling the Earth's gravitational field a sphere is a simplification. Like I said, it's a very good approximation, true to about a third of a percent. But even seemingly small effects can have a large effect on the trajectory of objects in orbit. We can get closer to the actual shape of our gravitational field by considering the Earth as an ellipsoid. Basically, we grab the Earth by the poles and we squish it slightly. The distance from the center of the Earth to the equator is 21 kilometers farther than the distance from the center to the poles. And this effect is common in rotating bodies. Gravity is pulling the body together, but if the mass moves towards the center, the rotational speed increases. This is due to the conservation of angular momentum. Angular momentum is the moment of inertia of a body multiplied by its angular velocity. If the mass of a rotating body is far away from the axis of rotation, the moment of inertia is large. But if the mass is moved closer to the axis of rotation, the moment of inertia is decreased, and in order for the angular momentum to be conserved, the angular velocity must increase. This is what happens when a figure skater spins. As they pull their arms inwards, you'll notice they start to spin faster. You don't need to be a figure skater to test this theory. You can do the same thing with just an office chair and some small weights. Start spinning while holding the weights outwards, and bring them to your chest, and you will notice you start to spin faster. Please don't tip over while attempting this. I don't want to be responsible for any injuries, even if they're in the name of science. Now back to the Earth for a moment. As gravity pulls a planet into a sphere, the gravitational potential energy of the matter is reduced, but the kinetic energy of the rotation increases. So we have this energy balance that ends up resulting in the stable shape being slightly flattened, what we call an oblate spheroid. We can refine our ellipsoid model even further, into what we call the geoid. This model is irregular, and shows the mass distribution of the Earth. And this is the most accurate model of the Earth's gravitational field. But as you might imagine, it's more complex to describe mathematically than either a sphere or an ellipse. If it's difficult to picture what the gravitational field means, think about sea level. A perfectly uniform gravitational field would have a spherical sea level. But if we have a very dense region of the mantle, we would have more gravitational pull and it would cause a bulge in the water above and around it. Think about this for a moment, and make sure you can see why a denser region under the Earth's surface would cause a bulge and not a dip. For me, it helps to picture the arrows, or the vectors, that the gravitational field would pull along. 
the local field would pull towards the center of the Earth and also slightly towards the region of higher mass. Our water level would be perpendicular to these arrows, since the water flows to an equipotential surface, and hence it would form a bulge. And this works just the same but in reverse in the case of a region of lower density. So even if you took a spherical planet and covered it with water, the water level might not be perfectly spherical. It depends on the gravitational field of the planet, which might be irregular due to regions of varying density in the planet. We can characterize the shape of the geoid with something called spherical harmonics. Now there's a great deal of math background to these functions, and if that sounds like something you might find interesting, have a look, or at least look at some images to get an idea of what they look like. But spherical harmonics have uses in various fields, and basically what they do is they describe regular ways in which a sphere can be deformed. We start with big deformations, what I call lower degree or order. For example, a bulge in the northern hemisphere, or alternating longitudinal bands. And we can divide the sphere into infinitely small pattern zones. The higher the degree and order, the finer the pattern. The ellipsoidal shape that we just talked about is a great example of a low degree or order deformation. The effect on the gravitational field from, say, a mountain range would be a smaller deformation, made up of those higher degree and order spherical harmonics. We can add all these different deformations together to get whatever deformed sphere we want. Those of you who might have studied some math or physics might notice some interesting similarities to the 1D Fourier transform, but I'll leave that open for you to investigate on your own. So as with many scientific models, we need to decide here if the accuracy is worth the extra effort for whatever application we have in mind. There's a reason we don't throw away the spherical Earth models, just because they aren't perfect. They're good enough for many applications. I will mention one more gravitational perturbation. We won't get too far into the details, because that would take us a little too far off of our main topic today. But there is a perturbation effect due to general relativity. Einstein's theory of general relativity states that masses curve spacetime. And basically his equations of how objects move in this curved spacetime, they reduce to Newton's law of gravitation, which is what we've been using up until now, but with the addition of one more term. And in most cases, this difference is very, very small. But there are cases, especially when we have large gravitational forces, where we can't ignore this extra perturbing effect. This perturbation was actually famously used to support the theory of general relativity. Before Einstein's work, Mercury had an unknown perturbation that caused its perihelion to precess 
basically to move with the orbit as it rotated around the sun. And this had been measured, but it couldn't be fully accounted for, even when scientists included the gravitational perturbations from the other planets. It turned out that since Mercury is close to the sun, compared to other planets, the extra term that Einstein developed in his theories caused a noticeable deviation from the basic Newtonian orbit. So once again, things are not quite as simple as we first imagined, and hence we have a new perturbing force. The ability of general relativity to account for this perturbation of Mercury was one of the original factors that supported the theory. So let's review the perturbations that we just discussed. There was the gravitational pull from external bodies. There was the effect of tides from these external bodies, changing the gravitational field of the central body. There was the shape of the central body itself, and irregularities in its gravitational field. And then we had deviations from the ideal field due to a more accurate theory of general relativity. And so far, all these perturbations we've discussed act on the mass of our orbiting body, because they are gravitational effects. For these forces, it makes no difference if our satellite is round, cubic, long or short, it all comes down to the mass. But this is not the case for all perturbations. There are surface effects that act on the surface of our body as well. We are going to start off our surface effects with air drag. You might be wondering what I'm talking about. I thought there wasn't any air in space. You're right, space is a vacuum, but it's not perfect. And this is particularly important for satellites in low Earth orbit. Remember that there was no perfect cutoff where the atmosphere stops and space begins. It's actually a gradual thinning of the atmosphere as you move up. So there are still small amounts of air out there that can slow down our satellite. Just like air drag slows moving objects on Earth, it's always acting opposite the motion of the object. And just like on Earth, the air drag does depend on the surface it's acting on. Remember that it's a surface force. If there's more area for the air particles to hit, the satellite will slow down more. Aerodynamics are a little more complex than that, but that will suffice for us for now. At a lower altitude, there is generally a higher density of air, and hence more air drag. Even at a given height, though, the air density of the Earth's atmosphere isn't always constant. The sun goes through periods of varying activity. At times when the sun is more active, the extra energy can cause the atmosphere to expand. And this means that low-density layers, that are at high altitude, get pushed further away from the Earth, and replaced with those higher-density layers from the air below. So a satellite at a given orbital height might suddenly experience an increase in drag. So just like what we saw with the gravitational perturbing forces, 
the surface forces can also have time-dependent effects. This means that if we really want to know the forces accurately, we need to understand how they change with time. The other main perturbing surface force is something you might not have thought about. It's called radiation pressure. Now, to understand this fully, it helps to be somewhat familiar with electrodynamics and or quantum mechanics. Our best understanding of electromagnetic radiation, or light, is that it behaves in ways that are like waves and in ways that are like particles. This wave-particle duality, as it's called, is a fascinating topic on its own, and I strongly suggest that you read up a little on some of the history and the experiments related to this topic. But these particles of light, what we call photons, are able to have momentum despite having no mass. We talked about momentum in the past, and you might even recall that we could calculate it with momentum is equal to mass times velocity. Now, looking at this equation, it seems like no mass means no momentum. And that's right, but unfortunately we can't use this equation for particles at relativistic speeds. As with most of Newtonian physics, that P equals mv is a simplification of a more complex model. Instead, in this scenario, we can calculate the momentum by using P is equal to h over lambda, or momentum is equal to Planck's constant divided by wavelength. Let's use this equation to see how much momentum one photon of light carries. Let's take a wavelength of 550 nanometers, which is green light. And remember that a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. Now, Planck's constant is very small. It's about 6.63 times 10 to the negative 34 meters squared kilogram per second. And if we divide this by 550 nanometers, we get 1.21 times 10 to the negative 27 kilogram meters per second. So as expected, the momentum of a single photon is incredibly small. Now, if we take 1,360 watts per meter squared as the flux density of the sun at the distance of the Earth, watts is joules per second, so we have 1,360 joules for every meter squared every second. Now, momentum is also equal to the energy over the speed of light for a photon. So our energy is 1.21 times 10 to the negative 27 times 3 times 10 to the 8, the speed of light, which is 3.63 times 10 to the negative 19 kilograms meter squared per second squared. And that's also the unit for joules. So what we have here is an energy. And if we divide our 1,360 joules per meter squared second by 3.63 times 10 to the negative 19 joules, we figure out that if all the photons were this green light, we would have 3.75 times 10 to the 21 photons per meter squared second. 
So that's a large rate of photons passing through this area. And if we go back to the momentum of a single photon, and we multiply it by the number of photons passing through this square meter every second, we get 4.54 times 10 to the negative 6 newtons per meter squared, using that average solar irradiance at the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Now this number does depend on what the photon does, whether it's absorbed or reflected, but we'll save that interesting conversation for another day. The color of the light we chose in the beginning doesn't affect the momentum, because we have a constant incoming energy in this case. A shorter wavelength would have higher energy per photon and fewer photons, whereas a longer wavelength would have lower energy per photon and more photons. In reality, the light from the sun is a distribution of many different wavelengths. But what should be clear from this is that the pressure exerted even by a huge number of photons is extremely small. Remember 4.54 times 10 to the negative 6 newtons per meter squared. Which is why we don't see this effect in our daily lives. It is still present, sunlight does push on you, and when you turn on a flashlight, the beam pushes on whatever it's shining on. But these forces are so minuscule that they don't really affect us. One place where this effect of radiation pressure is on display is in the tails of comets. Comets are cosmic bodies made of frozen gas, rocks, and dust. And one distinguishing feature of a comet is the tail, which is caused by the heating of those frozen gases. And it would be very fair to think that the tails of the comets point backwards from the direction in which they're traveling. But this is not the case. In fact, the tail of a comet points away from the sun. And you've probably guessed by now that this is due to radiation pressure. Most of the force on the tail of the comet is caused by the pressure of those solar photons and their very small, but not zero, momentum. So just to recap everything, the important part for us is that photons have no mass, but still carry momentum. And these particles colliding with our satellite will apply a small force. We've also seen from the equation that a shorter wavelength, for higher energy light, will carry more momentum and apply a larger force per photon. And while these tiny forces don't have much of an effect on us, they can have a large effect as a perturbing force for satellites. So much so, in fact, that it's not always sufficient to just consider the effect of direct sunlight on the path of our satellite. Sometimes we also need to consider albedo, the measure for incoming radiation reflected off of a body, and also shadows from both the Earth and the Moon. This is kind of like we've seen previously, where the gravity of different bodies could have secondary effects via tides. The sunlight can also reflect off the Earth, or be blocked by the Earth, which similarly causes other secondary perturbing forces. There's finally one even crazier effect that becomes clear if we think about all this a little harder. As I've said in the past, 
all electromagnetic waves have photons. Microwaves, radio waves, x-rays, these are all just types of light. On a satellite, for instance, radio waves are often used to communicate to the ground station. And these radio waves have photons, just like sunlight. Even though this light is outside our visible range, it still causes the same effect. So the simple act of sending a signal from the satellite to Earth, or from the Earth to the satellite, causes a force that moves the satellite and perturbs the orbit. So far, all this talk of perturbations and forces has been a little bit theoretical. So let's take a look at how much of an effect these factors really do have on our orbits. Obviously, the magnitude and the direction, although we won't discuss that today, of the effect of these factors will be different depending on our orbit. First, we will discuss what factors are dominant at a few different orbital heights. Then we're going to look at the magnitude of these effects for one specific satellite. As we mentioned before, at low orbital heights, below a few thousand kilometers, air drag is the biggest factor. But this quickly drops off and virtually disappears above, say, 8,000 kilometers altitude. The effect of the other surface force, solar radiation pressure, is less and it's not as sensitive to orbital height. The solar flux is similar all around the Earth, and so orbital height doesn't matter as much. If we compare the distance of the Earth to the Sun, which is 147.74 million kilometers, a few thousands or even tens of thousands of kilometers deviation from that is still a very small fraction. What is important in determining the magnitude of the effect of this perturbation is the orientation of the orbit, and particularly how much time is spent in Sun and in the Earth's shadow. The effect of the Earth's gravitational field, the fact that it isn't a uniform sphere, has a strong effect. The lower degree and order from the spherical harmonics cause the strongest perturbations and the finer deviations have weaker effects. Now this shouldn't come as a surprise, but perhaps more interesting is the fact that the large scale, those low frequency deviations, also decrease less as we move further away. In comparison, the effects of the, the more detailed high frequency deviations, it starts off smaller and also decreases much quicker as we move to higher orbits. You can think of it almost as a smudging or a blurring of the fine structure as we move away. The satellite gets so far from the Earth that it no longer feels the individual effects of the fine deviations, like mountain ranges, and only the largest deviations, for example the oblateness of the Earth, still cause an appreciable effect. The perturbations from other bodies, like the pull of the sun and the moon, is weaker than the strongest of these Earth-shape effects, but it's stronger than the finer effects, as we get more and more detailed. 
Finally, the perturbing effect of general relativity and the gravitational effect of Earth tides have smaller effects. So as promised, let's look at an actual satellite. In this case, a Galileo satellite, which is part of the European Global Navigation Satellite System. Now this satellite has a semi-major axis of about 29,500 kilometers, and an inclination of about 55 degrees. As we've mentioned, there's a lot of nuance as to how the individual perturbing forces change our satellite orbit. Depending on the direction of the force relative to our satellite, we are going to have different effects. The location of our satellite and its orbital path relative to other bodies will change the tidal forces, and it can even change the radiation pressure in the case of eclipse or shadowing. So let's start with the biggest effect, the ellipsoidal shape of the Earth, remember Earth's oblateness. The acceleration of this deviation is only about 3.8 times 10 to the negative 5 meters per second squared. But in just one day, this results in an absolute orbital position error of 22,000 meters compared to the simple Keplerian orbit. That's a 22 kilometer difference if we neglect this effect. The effect of the tides of the moon and sun are smaller and contribute errors of about 2,700 and 1,700 meters in a day, respectively. Neglecting those higher geopotential terms, that more accurate idea of the Earth's gravity, causes about a 340-meter error. Moving down the list, direct radiation pressure causes about a 290-meter error every day. Remember that I mentioned the second-order effects of the radiation pressure. If we don't consider that change in radiation pressure when the satellite is in shadow, we can cause another deviation of 10 to 20 meters. Even the shadow of the moon and the light reflected off of the Earth, the albedo, create forces that can deviate the satellite's orbit up to 3 meters in a day. The antenna thrust, that radiation pressure from a 100-watt antenna, amounts to about 0.8 meters. And there are other smaller perturbations as we move on, but hopefully you can get an idea of the scale of these. Again, how these forces affect an orbiting body depends on many, many details. But hopefully I've managed to convince you that if you want to carefully track or predict an orbit, there's no avoiding the effects of perturbations. So what do all these perturbations actually mean for us in terms of planning and operating missions in space? When we discuss perturbations, at first they seem like a nuisance, and indeed they can be. Sometimes the mission requires us to constantly correct the orbit to counteract the effects of these perturbations. And this can be achieved by periodic propulsion burns, for example, but this increases the complexity of the satellite and of the mission as a whole. This also means that the useful life of the satellite is limited by the amount of propellant it carries. 
Once all that propellant is used up, it can no longer counteract the perturbations, and the orbit will change over time. Global positioning satellites, GPS for example, need regular burns to correct perturbations, primarily due to the effect of the Earth's shape. Even if we don't need to correct the orbit for our mission, we still need to understand the perturbations. Let's imagine for a moment that we have a satellite in orbit around the Earth, taking pictures of the Earth. Even if we don't need to be in a precise location, we probably want to accurately know where the satellite is when it takes a picture. Or we need to know the location of the satellite in order to effectively communicate with it. For all this, we need to consider the perturbed orbit, because that's the path that the satellite is actually following, and that allows us to accurately track its position. Now, in contrast to these challenges, there are ways that we can use these perturbing forces to our advantage, and accomplish things that would otherwise be impossible. One potential advantage is that at lower orbital heights, we know that our satellite will eventually deorbit due to air drag, even without any input from our side. The residual air will slow the orbit and gradually lower its height until it no longer has enough velocity to be in orbit, and the orbital trajectory will intersect with the Earth. Then it's either burned up in the atmosphere or falls into, hopefully, the ocean. We haven't yet talked about space debris on the podcast, but it can be good to have a natural disposal method instead of being forced to leave retired satellites where they are and where they can potentially interfere with future satellites. Of course, this only works at the lower altitudes where we have noticeable air drag. We can use perturbations to measure geophysical properties. Satellites provide us with an extremely good tool or a platform for measuring the Earth. When placed in appropriate orbits, they can pass over the entire Earth in very short times. And by characterizing perturbations of the satellite orbit, we can measure indirectly effects of the gravitational field. And this can help us improve our model of the geoid, for example. Other perturbations can even change orbits in ways that are useful to us. The changing Keplerian elements can result in unique and very useful types of orbit. For me personally, understanding the possible benefits really forced me to look at the world a little bit differently. In engineering, we can't broadly state that some aspects of nature are good or bad, or even that some are useful or detrimental. Nature really just is, and the onus is on us to do something with that information. I believe that no matter what it is you're doing, being able to see difficulties as opportunities is an incredible skill to cultivate, and that alone will take you very far. So to summarize, there are a number of forces that can affect the motion of bodies in space. These forces cause orbits to deviate slightly, or not so slightly, from the ideal Keplerian orbits we've discussed before. The perturbing forces 
can be broadly separated into two categories. Gravitational forces, from irregularities in the central body and from external bodies, and surface forces, acting on the surfaces of the satellite. The way these perturbations change the orbits depends on the type of perturbation, because forces acting in different directions will change orbits differently. Finally, in general it's possible to analyze how a perturbation changes the different Keplerian elements that define our orbit. These forces aren't unique to space. There are countless tiny forces acting on us and the objects around us all the time. In the context of our normal lives, we can almost always safely ignore these forces. The reason we need to learn about these perturbations, and what is unique to the context of space and orbits, is that in space, even these tiny forces can have very large effects. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to be notified when a new episode is released, please consider subscribing to the podcast. If you know someone who you think would enjoy the show, go ahead and recommend it to them. Together we can teach more people about space. And the best part is, you get a friend who you can learn alongside. If you have any feedback, comments, or ideas, I would be thrilled to hear them. You can contact the show at theastronauticslab at gmail.com. Until next time, and stay curious, my friend.